it's important because right across uh, Central Europe, nationalist governments are seeking to rinse their history, are seeking to say, oh, no, it was just the Nazis. We were all loyal partisans. We were members of the Marquis. We were members of the underground. And that just simply isn't true. So it's important for us to tell the bad things that the United Kingdom did as, as well as the things that we're proud of. This is Johnny Gould's Jewish State. During the Second World War, the Germans occupied the Channel Islands. Four concentration camps were built on Alderney, including SS Lagersilt, which housed Jewish slave labourers. To this day, we don't know how many people were murdered because of those conditions in the camps. There's too much hearsay and rumour about this Nazi incursion into British soil. Today, we focus on this, the future of Holocaust remembrance, and a UK government bill which will quell the racist endeavours of BDS. Our two guests today make their first appearances on the podcast of record. You might say after 120-plus episodes of Johnny Gould's Jewish State, they've been rather a glaring omission. The Right Honourable Lord Eric Pickles and the Right Honourable Joan Ryan. And the Anglo-Jewish community owes a debt to those in our political class who stood up very publicly to the growing scourge of anti-Semitism which followed Jeremy Corbyn's leadership of the Labour Party around. And typically, proof that the oldest hatred stands above party politics is the cooperation, even camaraderie, which exists right across party lines, Jones Labour and Eric's Tory. And once again, I hand over the interview microphone for a deeper conversation between these two comrades as Joan interviews Eric. And if you're new to Johnny Gould's Jewish State, press the follow button wherever you're listening to this podcast, tell your friends, and scroll back one episode for Jake Wallace-Simons, who gave his first interview right here about his new book, Israelophobia, the newest form of the oldest hatred. You, my friend, with your swivel-eyed fury against the world's only Jewish state that you don't share for any other country in the world, only for the world's Jewish state, you are suffering from Israelophobia. Let's talk about that. Lord Pickles is the United Kingdom's special envoy for post-Holocaust issues and co-chair of the UK Holocaust Memorial Foundation, responsible for the building which will go up next to Parliament. Stay tuned to find out what's going to be in the building. And in a wide-ranging conversation, Eric also gives observations to Joan on visiting Israel in recent times, the real meaning of BDS, and the government bill which aims to stop local councils in the UK adopting their own foreign policies over that of central government. Eric also heads the United Kingdom delegation to the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, the IHRA. And Joan is the executive director of Elnet UK, a non-profit organisation dedicated to strengthening relations between the UK, Europe and Israel based on shared democratic values and strategic interests. And this episode is brought to you with their kind support. You'll know Joan as among the bravest of Labour MPs who persistently refused to back down 
as the crisis over Labour anti-Semitism ramped up during the leadership of Jeremy Corbyn. Now, leading Elnet UK, she said she'd wish they'd existed in the UK to assist her and her fellow Labour backbenchers during those fraught years. And when I remind her of the deep appreciation we have in the Anglo-Jewish community of her voice and that of many others, she just says rather self-effacingly, I was just doing the right thing. Eric's announced an expert review of evidence into the number of prisoners who died on Alderney during the Nazi occupation. Alderney was significant in the history of the Holocaust, not just because the camps were on British soil, but because they provide evidence of extermination through labour, or Vernichtung durch Arbeit, building Hitler's so-called Atlantic Wall. The review is designed to close down the conjecture of just how bad it was under Nazi occupation. And as you'll hear, Lord Pickle says, numbers matter because the truth matters. The dead deserve the dignity of the truth. The residents of Alderney deserve accurate numbers to free them from the distortion of conspiracy theories. Exaggerating the numbers of the dead or even minimizing them, he says, is in itself a form of Holocaust distortion and a critical threat to Holocaust memory and some peace to the residents of Alderney who continue to remember them at the Hammond War Memorial every May time. There were a couple of camps that were involved in the programme of extermination by work. And it was largely used for construction of the Atlantic Wall, producing uh, various materials. Now, it's very strange because people who know nothing about the Holocaust have very firm views as to what the numbers should be. There are some people in complete denial saying nothing very much happened there, that clearly uh, isn't true. And there are people that are suggesting that somehow it was an, uh, an Auschwitz-like camp, which clearly uh, it wasn't. It wasn't a death camp with gassing facilities and the like. But if we can establish that there, were a, there was a concentration camp then, and I believe there was, then it would be the most westerly concentration camp in the in the Third Reich. And um, if you've ever been to the uh, museum in in Paris of the uh, of the deported that disappeared, uh, they have a great map of all the various camps, and they highlight a camp uh, in Strasbourg and and Alderney as those that were involved in the killing through work. So we 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 want to find the numbers. And the thing about the Nazis is that they do tend to write things down. They wanted to brag. To, to Himmler and, and to Heydrich, the, the, the number of people they were killing. Uh, they like to record things. Um, as you know, I've been involved um, uh, in the International Tracing Service, which is the largest paper monument in the world. And even when they were running out of paper, they were still writing on the back of cigarette packs in order to record. And, you know, and the right army were virtually at the gate and they're still scribbling away. Unbelievable, isn't it? It reminds me, I mean, we were together, in fact, weren't we, recently in Yad Vashem with the, oh, wow. uh, with the delegation from the House of Lords. And I know you visited Yad Vashem many times. In fact, the guides there all knew who you were. So. Yeah. <laughs> and the Lords rekindled the eternal flame and laid a wreath in memory of the victims of the Holocaust. Um, but I do recall the guide telling us the, the vast numbers still 
of Jews who were murdered in the Holocaust and in the death camps, whose names we've still yet to find. And they've got the most sophisticated research facility of anywhere. I wondered, you know, it was obviously very moving and everybody was moved. And every time I've ever been there, it's very moving. Do you think it's really important to visit Yad Vashem or it's a very important institution? What do you think its impact is? Why do all these Holocaust museums matter? Oh, it's got an enormous, Yad Vashem particular has got an enormous uh, impact uh, uh, and it's great importance. And, and behind the, uh, the museum are, are a series of sort of offices of researchers. Let's just give you an example. Um, I was looking the other day, there was um, a group of prisoners that were, that were on the death march that were, there's about 30 of them. And they were very sadly executed by the SS guards. And the only thing that we had about them was just their numbers. And gradually, over a period, uh, Yad Vashem systematically managed to put names to these people. They've been able to find what they were. They found the my certificates. They found bits in, in newspapers of the guy that was on the board. There, there, were, you, there were little bits about them. So gradually... It's, it's a counterweight to, to Stalin's famous statement that a death was a tragedy, a million was just a statistic. Hmm. It's, it's a way of, of, of putting life into those statistics. And um, uh, we cooperate enormously uh, with government uh, in the United Kingdom. That's the parliament is going to be the new uh, monument. So, you know, the links is uh, the links are, uh, extraordinary for us. Uh, what will be? But, but yes. What will be in the memorial? What will what will people you know they come to visit it? What will what will they experience? Well, what, what uh, we're working in conjunction with the uh, Imperial War Museum, who are dealing with the Holocaust as a uh, as a whole entity. But what we'll be looking at is um, the Holocaust through British eyes. If you, and if people saw their exhibition in the American uh, Holocaust Museum on America during the Holocaust, it's very similar for that. But we've managed to find some, actually to dig up some new material. Um, we have some recordings of Patrick Gordon Walker, um, who went in at the same time as Dimbleby uh, to oh. Belson, and recorded not only prisoners, but he also uh, recorded uh, perpetrators. And we have this really um, uh, amazing recording of this Tipfer. In Belson, we've got the first Kaddish said uh, in Belson, enormously moving. And these are recordings that have been hidden for the best part, well, it's now nearly quite nearly 80 years, and they'll be heard for the very first time. So it, it will be also about individuals involved with the United Kingdom who did good things who, who, and those that actually um, did bad things. We found a guy called Clifford Orange, who was on Jersey. And he managed to out-Nazi the Nazis in terms of finding Jews on the island. I managed to find people with a degree of relationship to uh, to Judaism that even the Nazis would have thought was slightly tangential. So it's interesting how people react uh, uh, to authority. Um, we will have um, some of the debates that took place in the House of Commons. Uh, we will uh, look at different communities, how people came from uh, from Poland to the United Kingdom, and we'll try and use 
them to demonstrate the six million. And we, I know it sounds surprising, but there was about seven, eight hundred people who were British citizens who actually died uh, in the Holocaust and were trapped in Holland when the invasion took place. There's no monument for them. We, we, we will put up a monument uh, uh, to them. And it's going to be what's small. We're going to tell the story of the, of the kinder transport, which is lovely. But we're also going to say why it was called kinder, because we wouldn't let the parents in. As you remember, Jeremy Hunt, when he was um, uh, foreign secretary, apologised for the white paper that, that reduced the numbers of Jews that could go into Palestine. And uh, as a direct as a direct result of them, many of them uh, many of them perished. So mm-hmm. it's important because um, I'll just say this finally, John. It's important because right across uh, Central Europe, nationalist governments are seeking to rinse their history, are seeking to say, "Oh no, it was just the Nazis. We were all." Loyal partisans. We were members of the Marquis. We were members of the Underground, and that just simply isn't true. So it's important for us to tell the bad things that the United Kingdom did, as as well as the things that we're proud of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, people say learn from history. If you've not got some kind of transparent, accurate interpretation, factual element to history then I don't know what it is you're going to learn from it it's fantastic work when can we expect that to take shape to be there well it's received a second reading in the the comments that was necessary uh, because of a 1900 act about the use of the um, of the park it's a hybrid bill so we'll receive petitions and and then it will come to the House of Lords and there's rather a lot of there Lordships have flats nearby and have strong views, and uh, so we're expecting a difficult time. Uh, but it, it should go through. Uh, uh, it was unopposed in the Commons, and when there was a technical vote on whether or not the grounds for appeal should be widened, that was defeated by 11 to 275, and that's pretty decisive. I know that some of what you've said must already come under this title that you have, and this appointment that you're the UK special envoy for post-Holocaust issues. Could you unpack that a little bit more for us? What does it entail? What are the outcomes? Sure. Why, why do you think we need it? Is it because of what's happening with rinsing the, the history and not facing up to the issues? What, what's it all about? It's about facing up to the reality that the Holocaust shaped the latter part of the 20th century and continues to to shape this. I mean, the highest level of um, of education in Europe was Germany, and uh, the the highest number in among the FS of, of graduates and of uh, and of doctors and of masters people have masters degrees high, and it's about the, the nature of of understanding. Most people can imagine themselves being victims of the Holocaust. Few people can imagine themselves being perpetrators. And part of my job is to kind of explain, well, it is possible. These things can happen. These things do happen. I mean, the never again is possibly one of the most hollow promises ever made. If you look at uh, what happened in, in Sherbanitz and before in, in Rwanda, 
But my principal jobs is, is firstly Ira, and uh, I played a, a part in, in getting that adopted uh, by Ira and bringing it back uh, to the to the UK, which initially everybody signed up to, and then as you recall, John, the Labour Party decided to not like it that much. So that's quite uh, that's quite complicated because I mean, what we're about is about uh, educating about the Holocaust and schools. We uh, make recommendations with regard to Holocaust uh, remembrance. Uh, the second part of um, of what I do is um, is the International Tracing Service uh, in Bad Olsen. It's about um, uh, trying to preserve those records, get get them digitised, and bringing about reuniting uh, with uh, people of of family and friends. And also objects, um, restitution is part of my ambit. And uh, I uh, organised um, in the UK the first international gathering of, um, of, of special envoys dealing with restitution, which we had at the Foreign Office. And I was pleased, very pleased that the Foreign Secretary himself turned up to, uh, to lend his support. And we've got one um, in the autumn uh, in, in Washington. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's, restitution's been quite an issue. Aware of the um, the issues in Poland over restitution. Yeah, some, some, some resolution, but not a whole resolution, is there? Well, there's been some on community property, which uh, has been interesting, but there's none on private property. And Poland is unique, of uh, being the only country that's occupied by the Nazis that don't, don't have a... Um, any policy in private um, uh, restitution, mm. no scheme. And, of course, they uh, are attempting a court case against Germany for war restitution, which, which would be interesting. Mm, very, very. Eric, can I ask you about you? Uh, you recently visited Israel as part of the Elnet delegation that I referred to earlier when we visited Yad Vashem. 21 members of the House of Lords. I think the biggest parliamentary delegation from the UK that we've seen to Israel, it's a unique, and what was also unique about it, it was cross-party, Conservative, Labour peers, cross-benchers, ultra-unionists, Liberal Democrat, right across the board. About a third who'd been met a number of times, a third who'd been but not for many years and a third who'd never been thought an ideal balance right, yeah. um and this is kind of part of the bread and butter work of lnet generally but lnet uk what do you think of these delegations what were the highlights for you i know you've been with other groups as as have i i just wonder what you you know what you thought about that delegation what you thought works what's the impact of it i mean i think you can and they offer some really good briefs. And there are other organisations that offer really good briefs and uh, deal with the issues. But to understand Israel, you need to visit Israel. You need to get a feel of what it's like on the streets as well as meeting with uh, uh, with politicians. And um, I, I do something similar uh, through Conservative Friends uh, of Israel. We've been organising trips for their basic group of Conservatives. But it was interesting, and um, we, we went out just after there'd been quite a lot of um, uh, fighting had taken place. Um, uh, we, we, we were there just a few uh, weeks after 
the family were murdered. There'd been a hit and run in Tel Aviv. And I'll tell you for sure, there were one or two people who were pretty nervous. But I've always experienced this. And it's usually, it's a hot evening. You're walking in Tel Aviv. Maybe you're walking uh, uh, by the sea, um, going off to get a drink. And whether it's a councillor or a cabinet minister or, or just somebody, and we got it on this trip, somebody said, you know, this place is pretty normal. That's, and you said, well, do you mean? Well, they were expecting to see guns on every corner. They're expecting to be almost like, uh, you know, sort of like Fort Apache in the Bronx. And understanding and seeing people, seeing that innovation, seeing that commitment, seeing that, 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 that there's a real desire there for peace and for stability and for getting on with the, uh, the neighbours. So taking people out there to see it for themselves, make their own mind. And, and what was really, I thought, great, uh, John, is it wasn't just, we weren't just seeing the government. We also saw the opposition and we saw the Palestinian Authority and they got an opportunity to put their point of view. Now, if you went to some of our rival organizations, there is no way uh, that um, they would have seen that I've got a balanced program. And the reason why it's important is that LNET has the confidence to deliver a balanced program and has the confidence that people will make their own mind up uh, on the basis of the evidence before it. And that's kind of important. It's much better than a propaganda scheme. It's much better um, than sort of ramming facts down people's throats. And I think uh, when we uh, ended there, there were people who felt about Israel maybe in the same way that you and I feel about Israel, about its vibrant democracy. I mean, we, we managed to sort of get in, in and out uh, between various problems. We went to the south and looked at the Iron Dome and uh, the young girls that were defending it and were saying, well, it's nice down there, but um, nothing much happens, and it's nice for these girls to get that experience. And a week later, one of their number was killed. I know, yeah, yeah. It was remarkable, wasn't it? Those young IDF soldiers, boys and girls, and, I mean, they're, they're over 18, they're men and women, but they seem like boys and girls to us, don't they? They're, they're so young and fresh-faced and courageous and and committed and to, to defending Israel and their democracy. I, yeah. I just thought it was very, it was, it was quite moving talking to them. It was, it was removing. I, I, I find it moving when we sort of looked over on Gaza. Um, you know, you see a metropolis where all the best bits are carved out for Islamic uh, jihad and Hamas. Yeah. Uh, and, and yeah. uh, you know, they rely on the um, on Israel to produce their electricity, their water, their sewerage, the lot. Mm. And when we went to Kerem Shalom, the, um, the high security base where the 500 or so trucks a day go through to feed, clothe, allow some kind of economy to exist in Gaza, all, all, yeah, all processed yeah. by Israel. Oh. Yeah, it was, it was a very impressive thing, and you. I said Port Apache, I thought that was an amazing uh, setup. 
and the level of cooperation between uh, Palestinians and Israelis was impressive. Mm-hmm. Just get, getting on with the work. I think a lot of people have no idea that Israel helps Gaza to exist in that way, day in, day out. It's, um, it's a huge yeah. task. Can I come back to the um, British government? Um, I just wanted to come back to government business, Eric. Um, the government's published a bill and it's had its second reading in, in the Commons. And if it passes successfully through Parliament, it will become the law of the land, namely the Economic Activity of Public Bodies Overseas Matters Bill. Just to help people, I'll tell you the bill uh, bans public bodies from boycotting foreign countries and British companies that trade with them on the basis that governments make foreign policy, not other public bodies. Now, some have called this the anti-BDS bill because, of course, it went through as as currently published. It would um, have a big impact on boycotts, divestment sanctions. Some say it's overdue because BDS drives appalling anti-Semitism. Others say it's an attack on freedom of expression. I wondered what your view was, um, Eric. I, I'm going to ask if you're supporting the bill, but I, I expect you'll probably tell me yes. Yes, <laughs> yes. Yes, I am supporting the bill. I mean, BDS is, uh, is an anti-Semitic organisation. Its organisers make no doubt about it. It doesn't recognize some of the two sets of solution, doesn't recognise Israel, believes in um, from the river to the sea, wants to see the Jewish state um, demolished. Now, that's a view. And uh, that's one I don't share, but it is a view. And uh, there's nothing in that bill that prevents anybody standing on a street corner and deciding, um, you know, and saying that there's nothing that prevents them deciding at a supermarket not to buy uh, Israeli products or uh, or not to be navigated by an Israeli product. They have a bit of difficulty when they go to the um, NHS because one in six of all the patients are an Israeli one. But you can't use the public money for politics. You can't use the public money to say, I'm not going to invest. Uh, in that uh, company or that company now is really, we're going to pull our money out. People have an obligation to get the best for their citizens and they have an obligation to deal. Now, folks say, well, look, let's think about the 1980s. If we'd done that in the 1980s, um, we wouldn't have been able to boycott South Africa. And uh, the hard truth is this, that when they were boycotting South Africa, they were uh, attacking racism. Boycotting Israel is supporting racism. And uh, it's, it's no place for local bodies to do this. So I'm looking forward to it coming to the Lords. I like a bit of, um, a, like a, bit got, of a scrap. <laughs> it's got carryover, hasn't it? So even if the parliamentary session ends, the bill will come back yeah. after the, the next ki- King's speech. I nearly said Queen's speech. <laughs> the King's yeah. speech. Well, we know, we, we know that the King's speech will be the 7th of uh, November, which right. is deliciously close to the 5th of November, my fortnight. <laughs> so we'll have to search the, um, the salad pretty close. <laughs> Indeed. One last kind of big point that I, I wanted to ask you about, because I know you've, You've um, been involved in all of these issues, but 
there was uh, quite some disappointment some weeks ago because people thought after quite a vigorous campaign in the Lords, I must say, to prescribe the IRGC that um, the government didn't actually do it, didn't move on. It did move on it. There was some movement, but they didn't prescribe. You know, there are different views, I know, those that think, pres- and Elnet's view is prescription is the right thing to do. It's a terrorist organisation, although being a state actor. But I know there are those who worry very much because it's a state actor. I wondered what your view was, Eric, on this issue. It should be prescribed, and for this reason, I think. It is a state actor. That does make it difficult. People were concerned that, um, I think the government and maybe the United States were concerned, uh, that it might mean that the we'd have to leave the British Embassy um, in Tehran. I believe it should be prescribed because I think you need to say to the um, Iranian government is it can't be business like, like normal. You can't, uh, you can't send uh, death squads or organized by the Revolutionary uh, Guard. You can't send them to, uh, to, to Europe and the UK. You can't use this as a mount for enforcement of civil rights. That, um, that we are not going to license violence. And essentially by not prescribing the IRPC, we are uh, licensing violence and we're, we're turning the other, the other eye. Admittedly, they have um, put sanctions on a number of named individuals, but oh. I, I think the next step is logic. And, uh, well, we will continue to press for them to prescribe the uh, IRPC. Um, and I think uh, it's inevitable that eventually it will be. Having taken such a big group of lords to Israel, which is cross-party, one of the aims there that I think, you know, um, and we are very collaborative, as you know, we work work with any group who's, you know, wants to strengthen relationships between Europe and Israel based on shared democratic values, so CFI and LFI and all of them, I've got a really important role to play. We know that. But I think one of the things about a cross-party grouping is to try and build a community of politicians in each House of Parliament who are who are supporting Israel and understanding the challenges and the opportunities. And that doesn't mean that we're enemies of the Palestinian people because we're not. And that's not what it's about. No, we're not. true for you. Yeah, I mean, absolutely not. Nothing would give us a greater pleasure than seeing Palestinians and Israelis working together, as indeed they do in, in lots of places. If you think of all those all those rockets supplied by Iran, fired by Islamic Jihad or Hamas, all that money, if that money could be just poured into education in, in the Gaza Strip, if um, that money could be used for innovation and working together, it could transform Palestine and, and Israel. And the conversation between Joan and Eric then advanced into anti-Zionism being used as cover for anti-Semitism, Eric's worry about Holocaust distortion being an even bigger threat than denial itself, and that of AI as a spreader of new lies on a much, much bigger scale. Anti-Semitism, it's one of the, the oldest sins. Uh, it's been around for 
a millennia at least, and it tends to morph and change. And the reason why Holocaust education in itself, which is worthwhile in itself because it deals with partly with a certain kind of anti-Semitism, the reason it doesn't have a bite through is that um, anti-Semites now hide behind uh, anti-Zionists. And th this form of anti-Semitism is an attack upon Israel. And that's why the IRA definition on anti-Semitism has been so corrosive. Now, we, are, we also have um, a working definition with regard to Holocaust denial and distortion. And, and um, I mean, I came to the view uh, some time ago, I remember talking to a long conversation, a long um, car journey with John talking about this, is that I think actually Holocaust denial is not now as dangerous as Holocaust distortion. And we see that an awful lot where people suffering quite trivial things will compare themselves uh, to victims of the Holocaust. People who are, um, don't like vaccinations will wander around with yellow stars on. Uh, we even had uh, our own dear Archbishop of Canterbury, who is a very nice man, uh, talking about the Holocaust of the um, climate change. We need to understand what happened there was absolutely unique, in which a, a race and religion were, were targeted for annihilation by a modern state using all the apparatus of a modern state uh, to achieve it. So I think Holocaust studies are, are very important. It's very important to, uh, to remember the truth. But we need to be aware of the pernicious nature of, of Holocaust distortion. And uh, one of the things that, that I'm kind of, that we're likely to do in, in my term is we're going to do something with uh, AI. And my view is, is a lot of people think that we just put some kind of fancy algorithm into, into our original uh, recordings. Uh, I don't think that's going to be enough. The only way in which we can make a difference is by controlling the narrative by ensuring that the narrative is based on truth, so that people aren't going to look at some kind of technical wizardry to know whether something is true or not. They're just going to say, nah, that's not right. We know it was different. So I think it is important that we ensure that our strength, which is testament to truth, is not our weakness. The battle goes on. People need to understand what Israel is about, what Israel is doing, what is, how Israel is, is focused on providing a future, not just for the Jewish people, but also is a catalyst for innovation and for change and for progress in a very unstable region. Can I just pick up on, uh, when you talked about AI, it, it just reminded me of a conversation we've had previously, Eric, about social media. And a lot of people say, and I think it's true, that um, it's through social media that we've also seen a, a big increase in anti-Semitism because some of the anti-Semitic and anti-Zionist abuse on social media is horrendous. The ability to persecute those who stand up for Israel and try and make them back off or stand up with, stand shoulder to shoulder with the Jewish community. Um, what, what would you say, would you say something similar about how do we deal with social media? 
And that's it's obviously been made much different since, uh, more difficult since uh, Elon Musk took over Twitter. The amount of um, anti-Semitic tweets I was absolutely ballooned, and uh, you know I joined uh, a number of Holocaust and anti-Semitic uh, envoys to, and we wrote a letter to Musk saying, you know, you've got to do something about this. I don't think we've received a reply yet. But, uh, you know, in the old days, uh, someone like that um, would have to buy himself um, uh, a pot of paint and go out in the middle of the night and scroll something horrible on somebody's wall. Now it's just it's just a, um, a flick away, a tweet away, just a, a button press. And uh, we've got to deal with that by good anti-Semitic uh, uh, education. But we've also got to train our police and our criminal prosecution services to recognise what's going on. And I think a lot of anti-Semitic activity is not prosecuted because the police just simply don't recognise it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's the same, uh, you know, we put a lot of effort into football clubs for stewards to be able to recognise anti-Semitic uh, gestures. Mm. Yeah, it's an ongoing issue, isn't it? That's for sure. And I know... Lots of parents, particularly in, particularly in the Jewish community, really worry about their 14, 15, 16-year-olds online, on Twitter, experiencing this kind of abuse at that age. It, um, it can have sure. a really major impact. Can well, I well absolutely. Anybody, anybody that stands up will get a lot of stick. Yeah. And, I mean, you yourself have experienced that. I've experienced that. But, mm. hey, mm. you know, you... You know, a cause by the quality of your opponents, and our quality of our opponents is not very high. And it's a pleasure to bring a little unhappiness into their lives. Well, we systematically got our universities signed up to our anti Semitism document, and we followed that through by pressing them in terms of what they're doing to implement it. I mean, it, it is a pernicious uh, definition because it triangulates anti-Semitism. And the way to do it is by seeing results. I, I mean, I do understand that the United States has got uh, quite a problem. And I've, I've done a number of seminars. And I'm always getting, I don't want this to sound rude, but I get a bit irritated because all the time, or persistently, American students are wanting to get this into a legally binding form they're wanting it to be actionable and the truth is that the strength is it's not it's not legally binding therefore you don't need to amend it you can use it as a guide you can use it as a uh, as quite an effective weapon against an anti anti-semitism my advice and my wish will be just plow on on this because what we're saying what we're doing what we're trying to achieve on campus will make campus a happier place, a safer place, not just for Jews, but also for ordinary students. Because students shouldn't have to put up with this. You know, in, in the way in which we treat any minority reflects on that, on what our society is. We know to say when there were some concerns about Jewish people leaving the United Kingdom because of what was happening with Corbynism. If we lost uh, serious numbers of Jewish people, then uh, we will be a lesser nation. The, the British identity will be a less because the Jewish culture is an integral part of the British character. Why do you think 
that there is such a rising tide of anti-Semitism, certainly across Europe, we're seeing that. And, you know, what happens in Europe doesn't take very long to happen in the US. And of course, we've seen it there too now. I went on a visit to the US just before COVID. And I was talking to a number of leaders there, the Jewish community. And, um, and I said, I actually felt safer in London uh, for, uh, for Jewish people than I did in New York. And I think you could kind, you could feel the hatred, you could feel the movement. And since which time we've seen such dreadful attacks on, on, Jewish, uh, on Jewish property. I think the reason why it's growing is twofold, really. First of all, it's Middle Eastern uh, generated. And secondly, a, a degree of nationalism for the same reason that Hitler hated the Jews. It's, you can see that replicated right across Europe. It's about national identity. You know, we had a, a, a row with um, Hungarian friends who were saying attacking George Soros isn't anti-Semitic. Mm. What? I think it might just be. Mm. I think it might just be. And, 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 and some of the imageries that you're seeing now really float back. You might have seen uh, in the 1930s. We had this battle for four years with Jeremy Corbyn, as you know. He wanted to say, and many, many of these haters want to say, that they are not anti-Semitic, but they are anti-Zionist, and they don't want to accept that to fight anti-Semitism, you have to fight anti-Zionism. But it is, as you've said, it is indeed a form of anti-Semitism. You know, when, when Israel was seen, certainly in the Labour Party, but everywhere around the world for so long as, you know, a pioneer of democracy in the Middle East and the David to the Goliath and that all seems to have changed and now is part of the stick to try and beat Jews with. Yeah, it is, it is a, a, a pioneer. It is a democracy. It's the only place in the Middle East that elects governments, that deposes government, that um, people leave office without being shot, um, that uh, you, you can, uh, as uh, Mr. Netanyahu knows, no one is above the law. The judiciary is, is still free. Innovation is there. So, yes. I think what went wrong, it's basically Middle Eastern politics. Everybody loves the plucky Jew when they're being beaten into the ground. I don't like it so much. was when Israel can demonstrate clearly it can defend itself. There's something that we should rejoice in, mm. um, that it is capable of taking on armies from, uh, from, from, from the region um, and, and winning. And uh, Israel's no longer the, uh, the uh, underdog. And you know, if they go full circle, does anybody really think that the Holocaust would have happened if a vibrant Jewish state had existed? Um, uh, a, a, a kind of Israel? Clearly it wouldn't. Clearly it would not. Well, I'm proud to be a supporter of Israel like yourself. I think uh, I fell in love with the place in 1980 when I first visited it. I've seen it grow from a place where it produces pretty good uh, oranges to a place that still produces really good oranges, but produces innovation and excitement. And uh, it's, uh, it's a great place. And even at the moment, with all this problem about the 
judicial reforms, that wouldn't happen in any other country in the world. Nobody would feel, would feel that passion. Mm. Could you imagine that happening in Egypt? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think so. Iran, not a chance. <laughs> no. <laughs> Lord Pickles, it's been uh, a, a, an honour and a pleasure, as ever, to talk to you. You're such a good friend to the Jewish community, to Israel, and to the whole of our wider communities, because, you know, it's, um, I remember the chief rabbi saying, anti-Semitism isn't just an issue for Jews, that we don't want to live in a society where it's okay to hate certain groups of people and to behave in that way. So thank you so much for the work that you you do and for being a friend to Elnet. We appreciate it very much indeed. And the Right Honourable Joan Ryan in conversation with Lord Eric Pickles is brought to you with Elnet UK, strengthening relations between the UK, Europe and Israel based on shared democratic values and strategic interests. Tell your friends about Johnny Gould's Jewish State, Apple Podcast number ones right across the world, and a growing community of interest about Israel and the Jewish diaspora from every continent. Help me change the conversation. You can make a donation to do that. Buy me a coffee at ko-fi.com slash Johnny Gould. That's ko-fi.com slash Johnny Gould or donorbox.org slash JG Podcast. That's donorbox.org slash JG Podcast. 